welcome to Tales from the Other Side. I'm your host, Kat Wiseman. Thank you guys for joining me for the third episode of Tales from the Other Side. Before we get into all the spookiness for today's episode, I've got a few housekeeping notes to share with you guys. First of all, Tales from the Other Side is officially up on iTunes. So that's really exciting. So be sure to head over there to subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. And I'd really, really appreciate it. Also, to help with today's episode, we also have a an official Instagram account now. It's just straight tales from the other side. And once this episode is posted, that's going to go live and we'll have pictures to go along with this episode. So if you want to go follow, please do that. I think it will make this episode a lot more enjoyable for you guys. Because today we are going back to our childhood, or at least my childhood, with Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, the collection put together by Alvin Schwartz. And I've got 10 of my favorite stories from the books, or the ones that I remember being scared by the most, that we're going to get into a little bit later. And if you remember these books, then you'll know why the pictures need to go along with it, because the really the most terrifying things about these books were the illustrations done by Stephen Gamble. They just, they were otherworldly, like really. But so to give you a little bit of time to go pull those pictures up before we get started, I was going to give you a little bit of background info on the series. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is a series of three children's books written by Alvin Schwartz and illustrated by Stephen Gamble. And the titles of the books are Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, more Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, and Scary Stories 3, More Tales to Chill Your Bones. And those are published in 1981, 1984, and 1991, respectively. So Schwartz drew heavily from folklore and urban legends as his topics for the stories. He researched extensively and spent more than a year writing each book. They've been collected in box set and single volume. There's now an audiobook of all three books. And that actually includes missing a handful of missing stories from the first book, so that might be interesting to go look into. And interestingly enough, the series is listed as being the most challenged series of books from 1990 to 1999, and seventh most challenged from 2000 to 2009 by the American Library Association for its violence. And the surreal nightmarish illustrations contained within are also a frequently challenged component of the original books. And so, to celebrate the book's 30th anniversary in 2011, HarperCollins re-released the books with new illustrations from Brett Helquist, who you may recognize as the illustrator of a series of unfortunate events. And I looked him up, and they're just, I mean, the series of unfortunate events illustrations were scary, like, or creepy in their own right, but it just doesn't really fit with scary stories to tell in the dark. It needs those... I don't know, it needs the original ones to be scary, so hopefully you've got them pulled up on Instagram, and we'll be able to look at them as I'm reading you the stories. I'll have them in the order that I read the stories, so you don't have to flip back and forth through them. But yeah, okay, so without further ado, let's jump right in to our first scary story to tell in the dark. It's based on an urban legend known as the hook man but in scary stories to tell in the dark it was published as the hook one summer night a teenage boy was going out on a date with his new girlfriend he picked her up at her house and they drove to the edge of town they parked the car in a secluded spot that was a well-known lover's lane as they gazed out the lights of the town the boy put his arm around the girl and switched on the car radio so they could listen to some romantic music he leaned over and the young couple began kissing and cuddling 
Just as they were getting into the mood, the music suddenly stopped, and a newsreader's voice came on the radio. This is an emergency announcement. Earlier tonight, a crazed murderer escaped from the state mental asylum. Police are warning citizens to be on their guard since the patient is considered armed and dangerous. The insane killer is nicknamed the Hook Man because after he lost his right hand in an accident, it was replaced with a steel hook. Everyone in the area should be on the lookout for a man fitting this description. If you see anything suspicious, you should report it to the police immediately. The girl became frightened and asked to be taken home. She knew that the state insane asylum was not far from the lover's lane, and she was also worried that the remote area where they were parked was the perfect spot for a deranged madman to lurk. The boy was feeling brave and assured his girlfriend that they were perfectly safe. He locked all the car doors, then tried to kiss her again. The girl became frantic and pushed him away, insisting that they were leaving immediately. In a huff, the boy slammed the car into gear and spun its wheels as he pulled out of the parking space. On the way back to town, they both calmed down, but the girl still held on tightly to her boyfriend. When they pulled up outside the girl's house, the boy got out of the car and walked around to open the door for his girlfriend. For a long time, he just stood there, staring at the door. At first, the girl couldn't figure out what was wrong. Then she realized that her door was still locked. She smiled and unlocked it. Still, the boy just stood there. The girl was puzzled and rolled down her window. Then she saw that the boy was staring down at the door handle. Slowly, she looked down herself and began to scream uncontrollably. There, hanging from the door handle, was a bloody, stainless steel hook. Room for one more. And just a quick little about on this one. Room for one more is based on a supposedly true ghost story from Ireland called Lord Dufferin's Ghost Story or A Ghostly Warning. And it's also the basis for one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. It's episode 53, and it's called 22. If you want to look that one up, it's pretty creepy. Anyway, room for one more. There was a young woman who had just started a new job in a large office building. She was walking to work one day when a long, black hearse drove up slowly next to her, matching her pace. This made her nervous, and she anxiously watched it out of the corner of her eye. The driver leaned out the window and called to her in a deep, booming voice, "'Do you need a lift?' She turned to look at him, got a terrible shock. The driver's face was incredibly hideous and deformed. His skin was deathly pale, and one of his eyes was noticeably higher than the other. The man pointed to the rear of the vehicle, which contained a coffin. "'Room for one more,' he said. Frightened by his bizarre appearance and unwelcome suggestion, she refused his offer of a lift. Profoundly disturbed, the woman ran down the street until she came to the office building where she worked. For the rest of the day, she couldn't stop thinking about the strange man in the hearse and was glad when work was finally over. The woman worked up on the ninth floor, and when the elevator came, it was almost completely full. She hesitated a moment before stepping in. "'Are you sure you don't want to come in?' asked a familiar booming voice. "'There's room for one more.' The woman gasped. It was the hearse driver from this morning, eyeing her with his lopsided, horrible gaze." Now, thoroughly spooked, the woman backed away, stuttering, I, I, I think I'll take the stairs. The hearse driver just stared at her as the doors slid closed. The woman had only taken a few steps down the stairs when she heard a chorus of screams, followed by a deafening crash. She hurried downstairs and discovered the elevator cable had broken, and all the passengers had bored had plunged to a grisly death. Sunday Morning there was a young girl named Josephine who was habitually late for Sunday morning mass at her local church. 
She always forgot to set her alarm and wouldn't wake up in time. Finally, she got tired of her parents telling her off and decided she would never be late for Mass again. One Sunday morning, Josephine woke up at midnight. Unaware of what time it was, she thought she'd ever slept again and jumped out of bed. She quickly got dressed and ran out the door without ever looking at the clock. It was still dark outside, but it was usually dark at that time of year. It was very quiet and there was nobody else on the street. The only sound she could hear was the noise of her own footsteps on the pavement as she hurried towards the church. When she heard the church bell ring, she quickened her pace and took a shortcut through the cemetery. She got to the church just as the service was about to begin. She found a seat and took a look around. Much to her surprise, she didn't recognize anyone. The church was filled with people she had never seen before, and they were all staring straight ahead, and an eerie silence hung over the gathering. When the priest came out to celebrate Mass, Josephine realized he was a stranger, too. The priest told the congregation to pray for the soul of a young girl named Francois who had died the night before. Josephine was shocked. She knew Francois, and she had never even heard that the poor girl was ill. Something was radically wrong, and she began to feel very uneasy. She looked around again, and as her eyes began to adjust to the dim light, she saw someone she knew. There was an old woman sitting at the back of the church. Josephine's heart sank when she remembered the old woman had died the year before. Looking towards the front of the church, she saw that some of the people sitting there looked very strange. Their skin seemed to be pearly white. One of them turned his head, and Josephine discovered to her horror that he was nothing but a skeleton in a suit. This is a mass for the dead, thought Josephine. Everybody here is dead except me. It's a specter's mass. She noticed that some of them were staring at her, and their eyes were filling with anger. It was clear to her that she had no business being there. Suddenly, she felt a tap on her shoulder. Nervously, she turned around and found her grandfather standing in the row behind her. He had been dead for three years. There was a worried look on his face, and he leaned towards her and whispered in her ear, Leave right now. While you still can, he hissed. You don't belong here. Josephine immediately grabbed her coat and walked quickly towards the door. She heard hollow footsteps echoing behind her and glanced back. The dead were rising out of their seats and following her. Their faces were twisted in fury and hate. Josephine was terrified and she dashed to the door, a pack of shrieking ghosts snapping at her heels. She felt skeletal hands grabbing at her, trying to stop her leaving. She twisted and turned, struggling to free herself from their gasp. Her coat was ripped off and her hat was snatched from her head just as she managed to slip out the door. Screaming and crying and almost out of her mind with fear, Josephine ran all the way home and told her parents what had happened. And later that day, someone came to the house holding what was left of Josephine's coat and hat. They'd been found in the cemetery, torn to shreds. The Dare One night in a small American town, a young girl threw a party and invited all her friends from school. There was a large group of boys and girls, and as the night went on, they began telling scary stories. One boy said he had heard an urban legend about an old graveyard that was located near the girl's house. According to the story, an old woman had been buried in the middle of the cemetery, and there were rumors that she was a witch. They said that if someone stood on her grave at midnight, she would grab them and drag them down to hell. I would never go to that graveyard after dark, another boy said. You're all a bunch of morons, laughed the girl who owned the house. It's just a silly superstition. I can't believe you take it seriously. The boy who had told the story turned to her and sneered. It's all very well to be brave when you're safe and warm in your own home. I think you'd have a very different attitude if you actually went to that graveyard. It wouldn't make a difference, replied the girl haughtily. Okay, then prove it, said the boy. We'll all go down to the cemetery and wait outside while you go in and stand on the old witch's grave. 
A grave doesn't scare me, said the girl. I'll do it right now. You'll have to prove you really did it, said the boy. Otherwise, you might chicken out. He took a knife from the kitchen drawer and handed it to her. Stick this knife in the grave, he said. Then we'll know you were there for sure. The group of kids set out for the graveyard, and when they reached the old iron gates, they gathered in a circle. All of them stared at the girl. She tried to pretend she wasn't scared, and she hoped they didn't see her shivering in fear. With the knife clutched tightly in her hand, the girl walked through the old iron gateway and made her way through the darkened graveyard. In the moonlight, the tombstones and the trees cast strange and unnerving shadows. Eventually, she came to the old woman's grave. There's nothing to be scared of, the girl told herself. It's just a stupid story. Crouching in front of the headstone, she whispered, I'm not afraid of you. Then she raised the knife above her head and thrust it into the earth. Take that, you old witch, she chuckled. The girl was about to turn and leave when she felt something holding her back. She couldn't move. Something was tugging on the hem of her dress and dragging her down. She was filled with terror and flew into a panic. Help, she cried. She's got me. She's got me. When she didn't come back, her friends began to get worried. After a while, they cautiously entered the graveyard to look for her. They found her sprawled across the old woman's grave. She was dead, and her face was frozen in a silent scream. Without realizing it, she had plunged the knife through her skirt and had pinned it to the ground. That was what had been holding her. The poor girl had been so terrified that her heart gave in, and she died of fright. Burning Feet There was a wealthy man who loved hunting. He decided to go on a trip to a remote part of northern Canada. It was a forsaken and desolate part of the country, and few people ever ventured that far north. Even fewer went there to hunt. He traveled to a trading post and tried to find a guide. He asked around, but nobody he spoke to would agree to take him. They all said it was too dangerous. Eventually, he was put in touch with a stocky Cajun man by the name of Defago. The man seemed to know a lot about trapping, Indian lore, and how to survive in the wilderness, and the hunter thought he would make an excellent guide. Defago was badly in need of money and agreed to take the hunter out to the best hunting grounds. They set out together, paddling down the river in a small canoe, and when they reached their destination, the men set up camp near a large frozen lake. As far as the eye could see, the ground was covered in a thick blanket of snow. The hunter was enchanted by its beauty, and he enjoyed the sense of freedom it gave him. For three days, they hunted on the icy plains, but they had nothing to show for it. Luckily, Defago taught him how to break a hole in the ice and catch some fish so they didn't go hungry. The hunter was glad he had chosen to bring a guide. He knew that the only thing that lay between him and starvation was Defago. The third night, a windstorm came up. They lay in their tent, listening to the wind howling and the trees whipping back and forth. To see the storm better, the hunter opened the tent flap. What he saw startled him. There wasn't a breath of air stirring, and the trees were standing perfectly still. Yet he could hear the wind howling, and the more he listened, the more it sounded as if it were calling Defago's name. Defago, it seemed to be calling. Defago, I must be losing my mind, the hunter thought. When he closed the tent flap and turned around, he saw that Defago had gotten out of his sleeping bag and was huddled in the corner of his tent, his head buried in his arms. What's wrong? It's nothing, Defago said, just the wind playing tricks on your ears. But the voice that carried on the wind continued to call his name. It sounded oddly seductive and sweet, and Defago became more tense and nervous. Defago, it called. Defago. The Cajun man flew into a panic and jumped to his feet. His eyes were wild, and he was trembling. 
He pulled back the flap of the tent and was about to go out when the hunter grabbed him by the arm. "'Where are you going?' the hunter shouted. "'You can't leave me here alone. How will I—' Suddenly he was interrupted by the tremendous roar of the wind coming across the lake. The trees overhead shook with the force of it, and the campfire flickered and threatened to go out. There was a tremendous rushing noise as something swept over the tent, almost lifting it off the ground. Defago was shaking with fear. All of a sudden he broke loose and fled from the tent. The hunter watched as his guide ran off and was swallowed up by the darkness.' The hunter could hear him screaming as he went. Over and over he cried, Oh, my fiery feet, my burning feet of fire! Then his voice faded away into the night, and the wind calmed down again. At the first sign of daylight, the hunter followed Defago's tracks in the snow. The trail led through the woods, down toward the lake, and out onto the ice. But soon he noticed something strange. The footprints Defago had left became longer and longer. They were so long that no human being could have made them. It was as if something had helped him to hurry away. The hunter followed the tracks out to the middle of the lake, but there they disappeared. At first he thought that Defago had fallen through the ice, but there wasn't any hole. Then he thought that something had pulled him off the ice into the sky, but that made no sense. As he stood again, wondering what had happened, the wind picked up again. Soon it was howling as it had the night before. Then he heard Defago's voice again. It was coming from above, and he was screaming, Oh, my fiery feet! My burning feet of fire! But there was nothing to be seen. Now the hunter wanted to leave that place as fast as he could. He went back to camp and packed. Then he left some food for Defago and started out. Weeks later, he reached the trading post and set about looking for Defago. He asked around, but none of the people had seen him. He told them what he had witnessed, but nobody could explain what had happened to Defago that night. One old man took him inside and whispered, could it have been the Wendigo? Wendigo, repeated the hunter. What's that? They say it comes with the wind, said the old man. It calls your name and tries to trick you. Once it has you in its clutches, it drags you along at great speed until your feet are burned away. Then it drags you some more and burns away more of you than that. They say it carries you into the sky and drops you. That's the story I heard as a child, but it's an old Indian legend. Who knows if it's true? The following year, the hunter went back to the same area. Who was buying supplies at the trading post again and asked about his old guide, Defago. Nobody had seen hide or hair of him. As night fell, the hunter was sitting by the campfire. The darkness brought forth a strange figure of a man. He came in and sat far from the fire, where the light and the shadows mingled. The man had a blanket wrapped around him, and his hood was pulled down so low that his face was hidden in shadow. The hunter watched him for a while and thought there was something familiar about him. Defago, he asked. Is that you? The stranger didn't answer. It is you, isn't it, Defago? No answer. The hunter began to wonder if something was wrong, if the man needed help, but he couldn't see his face. Are you all right? He asked. No answer. Defago, can you tell me what happened, just a little, so that I can help you? From beneath his hood, the stranger muttered something. His voice was low and breathless. I seen that great big Wendango thing, he whispered. The hunter wanted to get a look at Defago. He still wasn't sure if it was really him. He reached out and tugged at the man's hood, and the hood fell back and the blanket dropped to the ground. The hunter screamed in horror. There was nothing under the blanket but a pile of ashes. Just Delicious There was a man who loved to eat. Every day he went home at noon to eat lunch with his wife. Although the man was not a good husband. He was mean, bad-tempered, overbearing, bully, and his wife was afraid of him. She was a shy, timid woman who did everything he asked. If she didn't, he would often beat her. One day, on his way home for lunch, the man stopped at the butcher shop and bought a pound of liver. 
He gave it to his wife and told her to cook it for dinner that night. His wife had prepared pasta for lunch, so he sat down to eat. While the man ate his lunch, his wife told him that a rich old woman in town had died and her body had been brought to the church next door. The man was not interested in what she had to say. He was enjoying his plate of ravioli, which he washed down with a nice glass of wine. He didn't want to stop eating long enough to tell her to shut up. Finally, he said, enough, I've got to go back to work. That evening, the wife began preparing the dinner. She seasoned the liver and cooked it slowly in a pot with vegetables and broth. After a while, she lifted the lid and the liver looked like it was done, so she cut off a small piece and popped it into her mouth. It was just delicious. The flavors were rich and vibrant. She thought it was the best meal she had ever made. She tasted another piece and another and another. It was so good she couldn't stop herself, and before she knew it, the pot was empty. Then she thought of her husband and she began to panic. He would be coming home soon. What would he do when he found out she'd eaten all the liver? He was not the type of man who would understand. He would be very angry, and she remembered the beatings he had given her before. She did not want to face that again. But where could she get another piece of liver that late in the day? It was then that she remembered the rich old woman who was lying alone in the church next door, lying in an open coffin, waiting to be buried. After finishing his meal, her husband got up from the table, patted his belly, and said, That was just delicious. He had never had a better dinner. The salad with a drizzle of olive oil and just the right amount of garlic and vinegar, the fresh garlic bread, and the tastiest, most tender liver that almost melted in his mouth. He looked at his wife. Aren't you going to have some? he asked. I'm not hungry, she replied. You finish it. That night they went to bed. The man had fallen asleep, but his wife was lying in the darkness, unable to close her eyes. All she could think about was what she had done. Just then, she thought she heard a voice in the distance. My liver, it said. Who has my liver? It sounded like the voice of an old woman. Gradually, it came closer. I want my liver, it said. Who has my liver? The wife listened. Was it just her imagination? Was she dreaming? The cry came again and again, piercing and terrible. Give me back my liver! It said, Give me back my liver! No, 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 she whispered. I don't have it. I don't have your liver. Now the voice was right next to her. Who has my liver? It asked. Who has my liver? The wife was trembling with fear. She pointed to her husband and said, He does. Suddenly the wife awoke in a cold sweat. She was so frightened she could barely breathe. She couldn't stand the strain any longer, and she shook her husband awake, and when he woke up, she confessed everything. She told him how she had eaten the liver he bought. She told him how she had crept into the church next door. She told him how she had slit open the belly of the corpse, deftly cut out the liver, and brought it home to cook it. Her description was so vivid, her husband could almost see it happening before his eyes. As he listened, he grew more and more angry. Then she told him about the ghostly voice she had heard, and he grew more and more fearful. The man was terrified of ghosts. I'm the one who ate the liver, he said. That means she will be coming for me to wreak her vengeance. He got out of bed, and without a word, he went downstairs. His wife sat in bed, wondering what he was going to do. A few minutes later, she heard his footsteps coming up the stairs, and when he appeared in the doorway, she saw he was holding a knife in his hand. She screamed and screamed. Later that night, the husband crept in the church next door. He approached the open coffin and placed a fresh new liver in the belly of the corpse. Then he went home and climbed into bed. His sleep was never disturbed again, and nobody ever saw his wife again. The Guests A young man and his wife were on a trip to visit his mother. Usually they arrived in time for supper. 
They had gotten a late start, and now it was getting dark. They decided to look for a place to stay overnight and go in the morning. Just off the road, they saw a small house in the woods. Maybe they rent rooms, the wife said, so they stopped to ask. An elderly man and woman came to the door. They didn't rent rooms, they said, but they would be glad to have them stay overnight as their guests. They had plenty of room, and they would enjoy the company. The old woman made coffee, brought out some cake, and the four of them talked for a while. Then the young couple were taken to their room. They explained that they wanted to pay for this, but the old man said he would not accept any money. The young couple got up early the next morning before their hosts had awakened. On a table near the front door, they left an envelope with some money in it for the room. Then they went on to the next town. They stopped at a restaurant and had breakfast. When they told the owner where they had stayed, he was shocked. That can't be, he said. That house burned to the ground ten years ago. The old man and woman who lived there died in the fire. The young couple could not believe it, so they went back to the house. Only now there was no house. All they found was a burned-out shell. They stood, staring at the ruins, trying to understand what had happened. Then the woman started screaming. In the rubble, there was a badly burned table, and on the table was the envelope they had left there that morning. Sounds A long time ago, there was a house that stood on the bay near Mobile, Alabama. It was known as the Madison Mansion, and it had been vacant and boarded up for years. Most people in the area kept well away from it, frightened by its uncanny reputation. Anyone who passed by couldn't help wondering what evil had transpired in the old place, and trespassers who dared to enter the house usually fled during the night, telling tales so grisly that they were almost beyond belief. One night, three fishermen were caught in a quick-moving storm and managed to make their way back to shore. Drenched by the rain, they spotted the mansion and decided to take shelter in the rickety old place. Once inside, they made a fire in the fireplace to keep themselves warm and ate a cold supper. Then the three men pulled their oilskin coats tightly around them and lay down on the floor to try and get some sleep. However, as soon as they dozed off, they were plagued by terrible nightmares of treachery and murder. Lying awake, the men heard the unmistakable sound of footsteps upstairs. It sounded like more than one person, marching back and forth. "'Who's there?' called one of the fishermen. The footsteps suddenly stopped. They heard a woman scream. The scream turned into a groan and died away, and the house was quiet again. Just then, the man who had called out felt something splash against his forehead. Something was dripping from the ceiling and forming a small, red puddle on the floor. To their horror, the fishermen realized it was blood. All of a sudden, a door upstairs crashed open and the floor shook with the sound of heavy footsteps. It sounded like a woman was being chased by a man. The frightened fishermen heard disembodied voices in the darkness. A man shouted in anger. A woman cried out in pain. They heard objects being flung here and there with a crash. Long howls of horrible laughter rose and filled the house. It went on and on until the fishermen thought they would go mad. Then there was silence. The fishermen huddled together and listened. After a few minutes, they heard something coming down the stairs. It sounded like someone dragging something heavy that bumped on each rotten step. The scraping and thumping noises came through the front hall and the front door opened. It sounded like something was flung outside, landing with a thump among the weeds. Then the door slammed shut again, and there was silence. There was a thunderstorm outside, and the house trembled as if it was about to collapse. Rain was pounding against the sagging walls, and the terrified fishermen couldn't bear to stay in the place a moment longer and decided to flee. Just as they reached the door, a flash of lightning filled every room in the house with a green blaze, and one of the men saw a ghastly face staring at them from the stairs. It was so horrible that it looked as if it came from hell itself. A crash of thunder deafened the terrified men, and they ran out into the storm, never to return. Nobody ever knew for sure what terrible deeds had been done in that house. 
The mansion was built shortly after the American Revolution by an English man named Madison, who was a rich recluse. He lived there with his daughter, who was said to be mentally ill. Nobody ever saw her, and the servants were kept well away from her. They never had any visitors and never went out. One day, without a word of warning, Madison suddenly left for England and wrote to his servants, instructing them to sell the house. The daughter was never found. She just disappeared. After that, the house changed hands many times, but nobody could ever stay there for long. The Appointment There was a 16-year-old boy who got a summer job working on his grandfather's farm. One morning, his grandfather sent him into town on an errand to buy some provisions. The boy drove the pickup truck into town and parked outside the market. As he was walking along the street, he was jostled by someone in the crowd. When he turned around, he was shocked to see it was the Grim Reaper, Death. As he stood there in the marketplace, Death beckoned to him. The terrified boy jumped back, ran back to the pickup truck, and drove back to the farm as fast as he could. When he got there, white-faced and trembling, he told his grandfather what had happened. Let me take the truck, he begged. I'll go to the city and hide. Death will never be able to find me there. It's the only way to avoid my fate. His grandfather told him he could have the truck, and the boy floored the accelerator and tore off at high speed. After he left, the grandfather went into town looking for death. Eventually, he found the Grim Reaper standing in the crowded marketplace. The grandfather walked right up to death and asked, Why did you frighten my grandson when you saw him this morning? He's just a boy, only 16 years of age. He's too young to die. I'm sorry about that, said Death. I did not mean to beckon to him. I was just startled. You see, I was very surprised to see him here in the marketplace. I have an appointment with him this afternoon. In the city. And last, but certainly not least, we have Harold. There was an old farmer in Arizona who owned the best farm in the area. Everybody said his crops were the best, and people came from all over to buy their goods from him. Whenever people asked him how he was able to grow such good quality crops, the old farmer would say it was all down to his scarecrow. That old scarecrow is the one I have to thank, said the farmer. He makes sure no crows or critters or pests come near my crops. The old farmer had built the scarecrow himself, and it was a fearsome sight. He spent months working on it to make it as scary as possible. He knew how important it was to keep pests away from his crops, so he gave it enormous straw arms that stretched out about six feet and big long legs that made it as tall as a tree. But the scariest thing about this scarecrow was its head. The farmer carved it himself out of a huge pumpkin, and he spent countless days and nights perfecting his design until it was perfect. The scarecrow's face and head was so grotesque and ugly that even he was scared to look at it sometimes but it was very effective, scaring away every rodent and bird that ventured near. The neighboring farm was owned by two young men who were brothers named Josh and Harold. They were lazy and never did much work around the farm, which resulted in their crops being bad. They were jealous of the old farmer's success and were plotting against him. If they could drive him out of business, they could take over his farm and make more money. So one night, the brothers decided to sneak into the old farmer's land. They stole his prized scarecrow and brought it back to their own house, where they stuffed it into an old closet so nobody would ever find it. The next day, the farmer woke to find his hideous scarecrow missing and all his crops being eaten by rats and crows. He fell to his knees and cried, knowing that his farm would soon be out of business. Meanwhile, the brothers Josh and Harold were watching from their own property and couldn't help laughing out loud when they saw the old man's tears of grief. Hearing the laughter, the old farmer came over and asked them if they knew what had happened to his scarecrow. The brothers looked him right in the eye and said they had no idea where his precious scarecrow may be. "'But you know I'll go out of business and have to sell my farm if I can't find my scarecrow,' said the farmer. 
Josh just laughed in his face, saying, That's your tough luck, isn't it? Sucks to be you, giggled Harold. The old farmer walked slowly back to his house, his head hanging down in defeat and depression. That night, Josh and Harold had trouble sleeping. Not because they felt any remorse, but because they couldn't get the image of the scarecrow's horrible, twisted face out of their minds. They decided they would never be able to sleep as long as that ugly pumpkin head was in their house. So they got up and dragged the scarecrow out of the closet. Harold took a baseball bat and smashed the scarecrow's head to pieces until all that was left was little bits of pumpkin strewn around the floor. The brothers swept up the pumpkin head pieces and threw them in the trash. Then they went back to bed and were soon fast asleep, having put all thoughts of the disgusting scarecrow face out of their heads. Sometime after midnight, Josh and Harold were awoken by the sounds of scratching and clawing at their bedroom door. "'Did you forget to put the dog out?' asked Harold sleepily. "'We don't have a dog,' stammered Josh. Suddenly, the bedroom door burst open and a solitary long straw arm snaked in through the opening. Then a second arm thrashed around, followed by two long stick legs. The two brothers were frozen in fear and could only look with horror as the headless scarecrow's body rose up on its long stick legs and its long arms reached out for them in the darkness. Harold felt a cold, sinewy straw claw close around his ankle and screamed as loud as he could. He begged his brother Josh to help him, but Josh was already running out of the bedroom. Fleeing in terror, he ran down the hallway, crashed through the front door, and out on the moonlit road. He ran as fast as his legs could carry him, puffing and panting and screaming at the top of his voice. As he passed his neighbor's house, he saw the old farmer standing at his gate. In the moonlight, he could see the farmer just staring at him, with a strange smile on his face. Josh kept running, his bare feet slapping against the rough gravel road. He glanced back over his shoulder and saw something that scared him to his very soul. He saw the scarecrow running along the road close behind him. It was gaining on him, coming closer and closer. And that wasn't all he saw. He noticed that the scarecrow had a brand new head and that it looked a lot like Harold. All right, so that about does it for this episode of Tales from the Other Side. Thank you guys once again for joining us. Hope you got a little spooked with um, these scary stories to tell in the dark. I'm probably going to do another round of these in the next couple of weeks. So if you didn't hear one of your favorites, definitely go over to Twitter or Instagram and send me a message and let me know which ones you want to hear from Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, any of the three books. Um, And we'll do another round of these coming up soon. Don't forget that Tales from the Other Side is now on iTunes, so you can go over there and subscribe. Or you can stick stick to SoundCloud, whichever works for you. We're also on Twitter at TFTOS Podcast. And now on Instagram at Tales from the Other Side. So I hope to see you all over the internet. And in the meantime, we'll be back next week with some more Tales from Beyond the Grave. Stay spooky, guys. <laughs>